Well, good morning. Thank you for joining us. I invite you to grab your seats, and we're going to pray and jump into our Sunday school class together. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your word. You've given it to us so that we might see and know you rightly. And I pray this morning that you would help us to um, marvel and be amazed at who you are so that we would be changed and transformed to live a life that is pleasing in your sight and glorifying to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're going to be spending our time looking through an overview of the book of Isaiah. And since this is the first prophetic book, it's important that we start by really identifying the role of God's prophets before we dive in. So as part of God's plan of revealing himself progressively throughout history, he appointed certain individuals to speak for him to his people. This was the role of the prophet. And although there are 16 prophetic writings within the Old Testament, there were hundreds of prophets that God sent throughout Israel's history. And each was called to remind God's people to remember God's promises, to revere his holiness, to repent from their sin, and to return to him who alone is their hope and salvation. We often think of prophets as people who told the future, but in Scripture what we find is it's not just telling the future. It's not just foretelling, it's also forthtelling. In the Old Testament, we find that God used his prophets as a mouthpiece to really shine light on even what had already been revealed. This is the responsibility of forthtelling. They would preach to the people, calling them to repent of their sin against God. They would remind them of God's promises and his warnings provided for his people through the Old Testament passages, the Pentateuch. But we also see that after forthtelling, they would then turn to foretelling. God would reveal to his prophets his plans regarding the future of his people. And there were really two categories of what was, what was to come. It was either judgment or salvation. The Lord's prophets would speak within each of these two categories of judgment and salvation and both a sort of close up and a distant eternal future. Judgment, for example, could include a historical pagan king rising to power to really conquer God's people and even enslave them and take them out of the land. But he also would speak of judgment of a future day, the day of the Lord where he would pour out his righteousness on the and his wrath on all wickedness. Likewise, salvation would include, um, for example, historic, historical pagan kings that God would use to release God's people, to return them to their promised land. But they also, the prophets, spoke of a future day where a righteous king, Israel's Messiah, would rule the nations in perfect peace. They would speak of even further this new heaven and this new earth where sin and death would be ultimately defeated and the eternal God King would rule and dwell with his redeemed righteous remnant forever. This is the Messiah's kingdom that was to come, that was the future and eternal hope for God's people. The prophets would proclaim God's word to his people, both past and future. And as one of God's prophets, Isaiah was commissioned to deliver a message to God's chosen people during the period of the divided kingdom, a message of both judgment and salvation, and his ministry covered over 60 years. 
But before we understand the purpose of this large book, we need to comprehend the background of both the author and the audience. If you open your Bibles with me, we're going to start by looking at Isaiah chapter 1. And amazingly, the exact information the Lord starts with was given about the author and the audience to make sure we would understand the context of this book. He starts in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, saying, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. The author stated, both initially and throughout the book, is the prophet Isaiah, who was identified as the son of Amos, who believed historically, according to the Jewish um, genealogies, was actually a relative of King Uzziah. But we also see in this verse that this message was directed at the southern king of Judah. During the divided kingdom, there was the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern king of Judah. And it was a call to them to really trust in the Lord. There was much war and strife going on between the nations and even the rising powers to the east. But their call by the prophet was critical. This prophet's role was even specifically, it says, in Jerusalem. This was the capital city of the kingdom of Judah. And Isaiah was to be almost this specific mouthpiece of God in the ear of the king. And as we've seen through our study through Old Testament history even, specifically in Kings and Chronicles as we'll look at later, um, the, the phrase of the Old Testament is, as goes the king, goes the people. And so to be God's mouthpiece in the ear of the king was critical at this time. The time period that's mentioned here according to the king's names would be between 739 B.C. and 681 B.C. And this portion of Judah's history was full, as we mentioned, of strife and conflict. Especially during King Uzziah and King Jotham's reign, they were really good at fortifying the kingdom of Judah. But in their fortifications, they would often find trust and peace in their own protection rather than in God. They wouldn't tear down the high places of pagan worship. And even in, his, in the book of Kings, we see that Uzziah's pride was so bad in God's sight that he struck him with leprosy, and eventually King Uzziah died from it. Although these were perceived as good kings overall with the, the fortifications that they provided for their nation, They were not fully submitted to God's law. The later kings of Judah, King Ahaz and Hezekiah, both experienced threats of annihilation from foreign enemies. And these threatening times for the kingdom of Judah left the nation in search of rescue. They desperately were seeking for a means of safety. They were frantically looking for a savior. And it's at this point that God enters into this moment to speak through his appointed prophet, the prophet Isaiah. And his message, he says here, is one that he saw. It says it was a vision that he saw. And throughout the book of Isaiah, he speaks of visions and words and oracles and experiences, all of which he says this word, he says he saw them. Repeatedly throughout the book, you'll find the words see and seen and saw and The point is that Judah was looking for a savior, and God was saying through his prophet, look to me. And the Lord really burned this message in the mind and heart of his prophet Isaiah in chapter 6. This was when Isaiah was commissioned by the enthroned thrice holy Lord of hosts. 
And as the foundations beneath him were shaking, and the house of the Almighty was billowing in smoke, Isaiah responds to what he sees in chapter 6, verse 5. And he says, Woe is me, for I am undone, I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What Isaiah saw was the Holy One of Israel, seated on his throne, and beholding him in all his perfections, all his glory. And the vision that Isaiah saw revealed both his and his people's uncleanness before their king. He saw their hopeless estate before their holy God. What Isaiah saw wrecked him, but it also redeemed him. It says that an angel flew with a burning coal from the altar of the Lord, and it touched his mouth. And the angel declared, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sins atoned for. Then Isaiah heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? To which Isaiah would reply in verse 8, Here am I, send me. Isaiah saw the Holy One of Israel and was called to give that vision to his people. And the reason was so that God's people would see the holiness of their God, would be cleansed from their sin, and would live for him. While Judah was looking for a Savior, God speaks and says, See who I am. And trust in me. And that was not just the vision of chapter 6. But the prophet's message of this vision was woven throughout the book from chapters 1 through chapter 66. Seeing these background details help us to capture the purpose which Isaiah wrote. And it helps us to really see a summary of the entire book. The purpose of the book of Isaiah should be found within a similar theme connecting the prophet's messages from beginning to end. And the chorus that rings out from start to finish can be summarized in this way. Trust in the Holy One of Israel, for He is our only hope and salvation. Isaiah knits together these years of preaching and prophesying and historical events so that readers would see God's holiness both in his judgment and in his salvation, and that they would put their trust in him and no one else. And our goal is to review the evidence throughout this large book to show the unity of Isaiah's message, so that we too might trust in the Holy One of Israel, that we would see him as the only hope and the only salvation for God's people. So although we're not going to go through chronologically this morning, I do want to spend some time just briefly showing you an outline of the book of Isaiah. There's lots of these in good Old Testament resources, uh, but I wanted to show you this sort of woven theme that's really from start to finish in the book of Isaiah. In the first 12 chapters, you find this, this wrestling between these messages of judgment and salvation and hope, and you see this tension of, are you going to trust in God or are you going to exalt yourself? And you see this throughout the first 12 chapters. And then there's this long section in chapters 13 through 35 where there's this judgment on all the surrounding nations where the Lord is really saying, don't trust the nations. Don't put your trust in them. I know there's all this war and these threats of annihilation. Don't trust in pagan kings. And so over and over again, he's lining up all the nations surrounding and saying, don't trust them. 
And then in chapters 36 through 39, we see this really historical narrative that's a pivot point in the book. And really, this is a story of Judah's tested trust in the Lord. And you see King Hezekiah's story brought forth, and it's even rearranged. So historically, chapters 38 and 39 actually happen chronologically first, and chapters 36 and 37 actually happen afterward. But you see the prophet rearranging, rearranging the chronology, intentionally showing us that I have a message for you that's not meant to be a timeline, but you're supposed to catch the message of what's being depicted. And the reason he puts 36 and 37 first is because it's actually about the Assyrian nation, who he's been talking about for these first 35 chapters, coming now to threaten the kingdom of Judah. And Hezekiah decides to trust in the Lord. It's a phenomenal story where you can really see God's power at work on behalf of his people when they trust in him. But then what we see is he actually was proud even before this event. And then 38 and 39 you see that um, he's actually bragging to the Babylonians who are visiting, and that comes to be this next half of the book is where he's really writing to the people in a future exile under the Babylonian reign. So there's this intentional switch, and what I want you to know is there's a pivot point in regards to the audience. Um, lots of resources help us to really catch this, and as you read through it, you see this different tone of before chapter 40, he's really talking to the present kingdom of Judah. But he's writing in a future tense almost anticipating the comfort needed for his people in exile. And so after it, at chapter 40, you see this change where he's really writing in a future tense to his people, and he's trying to provide, through God's revelation, a future hope for the nation of Judah. So it's important for us to see that this is really a big part about trusting in the Holy One of Israel. And you see this woven message throughout from beginning to end, even if it's not chronological. And this morning, um, I really wanted to take the liberty to really try to summarize a lot of these verses together. So we're going to be hopping around a lot. Um, if you want the verses, I'm happy to provide that afterward. But really try to take in the themes. Try to understand how this message is woven throughout. As we jump around from verse to verse, don't feel like you have to rustle through pages. We can provide the information later. But uh, what's really important for us to catch is the main character of this book. And although all of God's word is about God revealing himself, especially in the book of Isaiah, the central character is God himself. He is the Holy One of Israel. And this title that Isaiah uses over 30 times in this book is only used six times in the rest of the entire Bible. This was central to who Isaiah saw God to be. The holiness of the Lord was what Isaiah records, the seraphim declaring one to one another as they flew. In Isaiah 6, verse 3, they said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This word holy means to be set apart. God is supremely distinct in his being. There is none like him. There is none that can even compare with him because he stands alone. Central to the prophet's description of God's holiness is his title as creator. This sets God apart and above everything else. There's really only two categories. There's the creator and the created, which means there's God and everything else. The unique position as creator sets the Holy One of Israel in a category by himself. In Isaiah 42.5, he declared that it is the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spreads out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. This is our God. 
Not only does the Holy One of Israel reveal himself through Isaiah as the creator, but, but also as the complete sovereign. Isaiah 45, 7 says about the Lord, he says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. As complete sovereign, he does what he pleases with his creation. And this includes both his judgment of the wicked and his mercy for his people. And throughout the book of Isaiah, the Holy One of Israel is shown to be perfectly just. Isaiah 5 verse 16 says, But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in his righteousness. Later in Isaiah, he would record that the Lord loves justice. The Lord even describes how the sinner and godless should respond with fearful questions in light of God's holy justice. Isaiah 33, 14 records these questions saying, who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? But the Lord's perfect justice is not terrifying to all. We see in Isaiah 30, verse 18, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. Get this reason. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. We also see that the Holy One of Israel is set apart as his people's comforting redeemer. To capture the radical nature of this truth, the Lord speaks of a cosmic choir that pours forth rejoicing in Isaiah 49, 13. Sing for joy, O heavens, he records, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. The direct statement of Isaiah 54, 5 is found echoing throughout the second half of this book where he says, the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth. He is called. Then in Isaiah 63, 9, we find a beautiful recounting of God's merciful redemption, a phrase and a verse that we will be resounding and singing through all eternity, a statement that says, and he became their Savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and he carried them all the days of old. This is the exalted and revealed Holy One of Israel, the complete sovereign over all his creation who executes justice and graciously comforts those he redeems. But not only do we find a repeated emphasis on the holiness of God, but we also see the hopelessness of man without God. Over and over, we find this theme highlighted, and this idea that God is the only exclusive hope for his people. And he does this by showing the total worthlessness of anything other than God. There's no reason to put your trust in anything else and the first one that seems emphasized heavily throughout this book that comes to mind is the nations. He says over and over again, the nations cannot save you. In Isaiah chapter 31, he speaks specifically an example of Egypt. 
He says, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, to rely on their horses and their chariots and their horsemen. He says, woe to you, because you're not looking to the Holy One of Israel or consulting the Lord. He tells them specifically later even that Egypt was this sort of broken staff that they would try to lean on that would only impale themselves. He talks about his people as he's a roaring lion over his prey and that none will and none of the shouting or daunting noise will scare him away. That he is like birds hovering over his people to protect Jerusalem and that he will protect it and deliver it. And that his people are called to turn and trust in him. The nations are not worth putting your hope in. There is no hope there. There is no salvation there. They cannot save. But we also find repeatedly the emphasis on idols. Idols also cannot save. Isaiah 42, 8 says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. In 42, 17, he says, they are turned back and utterly put to shame. Who is it that's put to shame? He says, those who trust in carved idols, who say to their metal images, you are our gods. In chapter 44, you see this scenario where there's um, the Lord mockingly playing out this, this situation of a carpenter who goes and cuts down a tree and he says to himself, well, I'm going to cut half of it and I'm going to use this to make a fire and I'm going to make myself a meal and I'm going to feed myself with this part of the wood. And then the other half, I'm going to go ahead and carve an image out of it and say, you are my God. And bow down and pray and worship this piece of wood that, that I just burned up. And he tries to show the foolishness of this sort of thinking in Isaiah chapter 44. Why would you pray to this wooden statue that you created saying, deliver me? And he calls his people blind and unknowledgeable and not discerning at the clear apparent contradiction of what they make for themselves and call their gods. Yet they continue to make these abominations, he says. Abominations out of what he called just a block of wood. The Lord showed even a, a stark contrast between trusting in idols and trusting in the Lord. In Isaiah fifty-seven thirteen. he said, When you cry out, let your collection of your idols deliver you. The wind will carry them all off and a breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. It's clear that the idols provide no hope for God's people. They cannot trust in idols. But there's also this theme of pride, of self-centeredness that we see all throughout the book of Isaiah. God has a fierce hatred for pride and arrogance and it's repeated throughout the entire book. Pride is this sort of lofty view of self that results in a self-reliance, in trusting in self rather than in God. According to Isaiah 47.10, this proud self-assessment of the wicked says in their heart, no one sees me, and in their wisdom says, I am, and there is no one besides me. This is the sort of thinking of the proud and the arrogant that trust in themselves. But the Lord is not blind to prideful men. In Isaiah 2, 11 and 12, he says, The haughty looks of man shall be brought low. The lofty pride of men shall be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against 
all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. There is none that shall stand proud on the final day of the Lord's judgment. In that large section of chapter 13 through 35, where repeatedly we see this this distrust the people should have for, for these foreign nations, it's full and full of calling out the pride of these pagan nations. For example, he says, even in the opening for all of it, he says in Isaiah 13, 11, the Lord speaks saying, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp and the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. The Lord was making clear that there is no other option. You cannot trust in the nations. You cannot trust in false gods, and you cannot rely on yourself. Don't be proud. Turn to the Lord and trust in him. There is no alternative solution. There is no hope apart from our only hope, the Holy One of Israel. He was their hope, and he desperately declared it in judgment and salvation for his people over and over Which takes us to the next part of our summary statement, that he alone is their only salvation as well. First we see that God specifically and clearly states that he is their redeemer and their savior. Isaiah 41, 14 says, Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 43, 10 and 11 says, Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. The Holy One of Israel is the only Savior for his people. And throughout this book, we see these messianic prophecies that would inform God's people of how he would bring about this salvation. We see that there's a divine Davidic king revealed through the prophet Isaiah. This is the coming Messiah Messiah spoken of in Isaiah chapter 9, which says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful. Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This eternal God king will rule David's kingdom. That is what the Lord will do to save his people. But not only do we see a divine Davidic king, we also see the Lord's suffering servant was this Messiah who would establish justice. Isaiah 42.1 says, Behold my servant, who I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice, he says, to the nations. And then in verse 4 of chapter 42, he says, He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And we also know famously from Isaiah 53 that this servant king would suffer for the salvation of his people. 
In the closing of the chapter, in 11 and 12, he writes, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, he says, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because, why? He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. It's important that we recognize this Davidic Messiah, this suffering servant, was not just saving God's people, but there is mention of the many. And in verse uh, 15 of chapter 52, right before, there's this phrase that um, is part of this messianic message that says that he would suffer and would sprinkle many nations. That there's a broader audience even for this suffering servant's salvation. And in Isaiah 56, 6, we see the Lord saying, or the prophets speaking before the people, saying, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister for him and love his name and be his servants, these are the ones who I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. But this servant king shows his holy justice in both his personal atoning sacrifice for the many, and his lone victory over all evil. Within the context of depicting God's wrath as a bloody crushing of the wicked, like the stomping of a winepress, he speaks in Isaiah 63, 4, saying, For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation. My wrath upheld me. This is the conquering king, and he is also this suffering servant. They are the same who would provide this redemption and would pour out wrath. This is the righteous one, the king who will rule his kingdom in perfect justice. And this coming kingdom would bring transformation not just to God's people and not just to uh, perform justice perfectly, but it would also transform all of creation. We see in Isaiah 65, 25, speaking of this future kingdom, it says, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. That's not what we experience now. The lion shall eat like straw, it will eat like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. But this new physical kingdom where the Prince of Peace reigns is described a couple of verses earlier as long life, not yet eternal life. Isaiah 65 verse 20 says, No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. This seems very different from today, but, but not exactly what John records later in the book of Revelation in chapter 21, where the Lord himself declares from his throne about his new heavens and his new earth, saying, death shall be no more. So there's this, this sort of, okay, he's, he's looking forward, he has this moment 
this vision, this prophecy for God's people. And it's important that we recognize a lot of times the prophets were speaking directly to an audience. And he's speaking to Judah here, and he's looking forward, seeing what the Lord's going to do. And he's picking out these parts, and it's kind of like driving over to Colorado, and you see this large mountain range, right? And what you see is it seems like it's all lined up, but then as Revelation continues to progress, you see more of the details, and you approach, and you see there's a large distance between some of these events. But they all are true. They all really happen as described. And what we need to understand is this Davidic kingdom promise belongs directly to Israel, not the church. And just as Isaiah's other prophecies were literally fulfilled, we should expect this future exaltation of Jerusalem to be on earth, not figuratively in heaven. This planet is where Jesus Christ, the suffering servant and the conquering king, will return and reign personally, initially for a thousand years over his remnant and the nations, and then eternally in the new heavens and new earth with his perfected household of God. This is the eternal salvation that only the Holy One of Israel can provide. And he graciously reveals this salvation so that they would trust in him alone. This is the cry of the prophet from cover to cover. Trust in the Holy One of Israel. And we see this anticipated in the words of God's future redeemed people. Isaiah 12, 2 says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. We see it in the songs written for the future day of peace in Judah. Isaiah 26, 4 says, Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord God is an everlasting rock. We see it in the effects even of this future righteous kingdom that was to come in Isaiah 32, 17. It says, and the results of righteousness will be this, quietness and trust forever. This is the vision that Isaiah the prophet saw and it radically transformed his life. And it all started with seeing the Holy One of Israel. Seeing that God alone is holy and perfect and righteous and just. And that in response, he saw himself as an unclean, sinful man that had no hope in himself or surrounding him. Nothing else in creation would provide hope. But that God alone was his only hope and his salvation. And that this salvation would come through this suffering Savior who was the Redeemer, who was the Holy One of Israel. And seeing God's holiness and man's sinfulness and this provision of a suffering Savior was this desperate call to God's people to say, trust in the Holy One of Israel. Now if you've been in our church long enough, you probably see a pattern here of four key elements of the, the message that we resound throughout every sermon, in every song, in every prayer, it's the good news of the gospel. This is the gospel message, forwards, backwards, sideways, upside down, and it's all throughout the Old Testament, even in the book of Isaiah. This is the good news that God is the creator, that he is the creator and he makes the rules, and man has broken his law. We have disobeyed. And that we need a Savior who can atone for our sins, the suffering Savior, Jesus Christ. And that we too are called to trust in Him and His atonement forever. 
That's why the prophet Isaiah is often referred to as the evangelistic prophet. The gospel is one. There is one gospel we sing in which we stand for all eternity. And it's the same message that has been written on the pages of the Old Testament for God's people to turn from their sin and trust in the Holy One of Israel. Jesus said it this way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Peter said it in Acts 14 in reference to this, to this Savior that he has seen and redeemed him, saying there is salvation in no one else, for there is no name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And the Lord spoke through the prophet Isaiah, declaring the same gospel truth to his people. Trust in the Holy One of Israel, for he is our only hope and salvation. I hope this is a helpful tool for you as you read through and dig into these Old Testament books that are rich with truth that impact us today as well. And I hope that you will join us in two weeks. Next week is Easter Sunday, so we'll not be gathering again uh, for our adult Sunday school class as we normally do, but we invite you to join us at 1030 for Easter worship service. And in two weeks, we'll be overviewing the Old Testament prophetic book of Hosea. And with that, you're dismissed.